Hello and welcome to this episode of the Event Manager Podcast, the podcast for event professionals who want to stay ahead of the game by hearing from the leading innovators in the event industry. My name is Miguel Neves and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of EventMB. In this episode titled Optimizing Online Visibility, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sabrina Myers, founder of the Sabrina Myers Consultancy. We cover a lot of ground, including why documenting your experience should be the basis of your content online. We cover the challenges of taking on multiple overlapping roles in events. We talk about why there may still be challenges ahead for the return of in-person events. We talk about the rising expectations around in-person events being transposed online, both for live streaming and on-demand content. And we talk about the new challenges of attendee commitment to virtual events. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation, and I invite you to check out the other episodes of the Event Manager Podcast. You can find all the episodes on our website, or you can subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Event Manager Podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined by the one and only Sabrina Myers. Welcome, Sabrina. Really nice to have you with us on the podcast. Thank you, Miguel. It is such a pleasure to be on the podcast and be described <laughs> as the one and only. So thank you. <laughs> the one and only. Um, for people that don't know who Sabrina Myers is, um, could you give us a little bit of an intro about who you are and, and how did you kind of get to be you? Absolutely. I always find that question very deep, but I will try and attempt to answer go, it as best as possible. <laughs> go as deep as you as you want to. I mean, uh, give us give us the whole story. Okay, well, um, so I am an event planner and I've been an event planner for about ooh, a good 10 years. Uh, And before I was an event planner, I was actually in hospitality sales. So I was selling hotels with event space. So kind of the other side of the coin. Um, I started my career in hotels, in the sales and marketing department as a sales coordinator. And then I fell in love with basically, I guess, events and the whole world of events, whether it's on the hotel side um, with a I want to say line of sight to move into the actual event side of things onto agency side uh, or corporate events direct. So uh, my story starts in Singapore. That's where I'm born and raised. Um, I then moved to Australia to finish my education in hospitality, uh, hotel management at the time. And no, actually it was called hotel management, business and tourism. So it was kind of like a nice circle of all three things. Um, Obviously, I started my first job in Sydney, Australia, at the back then Sheraton on the Park, which was part of Starwood, which obviously everything is now Marriott. Um, And uh, then I decided I wanted to 
see the world. And I moved to London, where I continued working with Hilton. And then I moved on to work for the leading hotels of the world, where I got a little bit of taste of the luxury life, which was fantastic. Um, and then I transitioned into starting um, a role as account manager um, in a startup full service event management agency. We were very, very small. Um, the owner and CEO was based in New York and I opened up the London office. And so really in grand total, there were probably maybe four of us um, and we were doing everything from account management, business development, performance evaluations, HR, um, you know, all of it, logistics and everything. So every cl client basically was a huge deal for such a small company. And we really wanted to make sure that we pushed it out of the park uh, every single time when it came to running our events. Um, so I did that in London for four years. And I got to know an incredible community of event profs that I'm very, very well connected to and still very close to now, the UK event profs community. Um, and I met a German who I then married and I moved to Germany uh, where I had a little boy. I took a year and a half out on maternity and I decided I wanted to obviously come back into the events industry, but I was trying to figure out how. And I decided to enter uh, via the venue sourcing route. So my first entry point back into the events as Sabrina Myers, the German, uh, was as a venue sourcing consultant. And I was working for a company called Global Synergies, which are, I would say, very, very much smaller than Helms Briscoe, for example. That's the same kind of business model. And I did that for... A little bit, and I was headhunted um, by George P. George P. Johnson, uh, based out of Stuttgart, where I was brought onto a team that was quite um, international. It was five of us, but all of us were based remotely across Europe, and we were organizing all the largest conferences um, here on the European side for IBM. So I did that for almost two years with this team. And then um, that team got made redundant. And I decided to start up on my own. And that was the birth of, I want to say, Orchid Lily events. Well, I say it was, it's a two-pronged birth. It was the birth of Orchid Lily events, which was basically me. Uh, and I called it Orchid Lily because I was born in Singapore and that's the national flower of Singapore. But my family is from Bangladesh and that's the national flower of Bangladesh. So I kind of brought it together. Um, and I was basically doing venue sourcing, event management uh, for my clients that needed on-site logistics support. Um, but I was also freelancing with um, two German event agencies where they needed people when they were doing larger projects for their clients, whether it was inbound or outbound. Um, and that's what I basically continued to do until the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, I would say I transitioned into the world of social media, where I was already for a few years. In 2017, I launched my brand, Hot Hospitality Exchange, which was basically at the time a hobby or like a passion where 
I, I started creating vlogs for YouTube on my experiences as an event planner for other event planners. My whole idea was, okay, if I go do a site inspection, I'm going to make a video about my site inspection. So if someone can't fly to London to see this, vid, um, to see this hotel, um, they can watch a video of this and they'll understand where the event space is. They'll kind of see it from an event professional's eyes. Uh, because not everyone always has the budget to actually fly over and do a site inspection. So I thought at the rate that I'm doing all of this stuff, it's good to kind of create an archive of this kind of videos. Um, so yeah, I started doing that kind of personally. Um, in 2017, I was doing vlogs about trade shows, about fam trips, about uh, forums and networking forums that I intended, um, all with the perspective of kind of giving my insights and 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 educating the other event professionals like myself who might be interested in these venues or destinations or shows and what they're like and should I go to IBTM what is that hosted by your experience like should I go on I forum what is that like um and I guess through my activity it led me to some uh businesses in the events industry reaching out to me wanting to work with me and help them create online content for their brands, as well as uh, their shows, for example. So one of the clients I had very, very early on was the Break the Ice Forums. Um, these two wonderful brothers who organized these uh, fantastic intimate networking forums, and they wanted me to come and be the social media correspondent. Um, so kind of live reporting on Instagram from the show, doing all the content and then coming up with a vlog about the experience afterwards. Um, I still work with them. Um, but in 2017, uh, yeah, it, I wasn't very obviously known. This whole thing was very much unknown, the world of social media. And in 2020, when the pandemic hit, obviously all of us were grounded and we couldn't do events. So I had to ask myself a serious, serious question. What was I going to do? And I decided to turn all like go 150% into social media and being as visible as possible online, because I knew at that point, the entire community and network of people that I knew were all going to be online. So in order for me to be able to I don't know, achieve or do whatever it was I was meant to do at that point of time, it would be through that medium and platform. And so now I've kind of transitioned into a space where I sit between the world of social media and events. And it's a really interesting place to be because um, I think social media is or, or has become uh, quite... I want to say important in our world uh, in terms of, you know, networking, communicating and engaging with an audience and a community and building community and this whole community marketing and, 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 you know, that whole thing right now, um, it is one of the best ways to do it. And then there's events, which is starting to come back and destinations, which are starting to contact me and say, they would love to work with me on social media campaigns to, kind of come up with and conceptualize ways to market their destinations. So it's a really interesting place to be and, and that's where I am. And I have obviously slightly rebranded in that it's I'm founder 
of Sabrina Myers Consultancy, which obviously looks over Hot Hospitality Exchange with all the social media activity and Orchid Lily events, which is basically all the event management side of things and logistics. So That's you've created a, a holding company for, for the two different businesses. I have. I have. <laughs> for the two different brands, let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, you were, you were serious when, when you wanted to go deep. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, You're welcome. I wanted to unpack four things, actually, in, in what you said. I hope you don't mind. Um, of course not. What I think was really interesting is you were talking about, okay, being in this sort of venue finding role and then transitioning to GPJ, to George P. Johnson. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm making a few assumptions here, but I, I assume that your online presence was not that developed at this point, right? Correct. And then you have this period where you are kind of planning events and doing things, and then you ramp up sort of for the pandemic. I want you to talk to me a little bit about that period when you go from like George B. Johnson to being more kind of solo and doing things on your own. Uh, how did you kind of, how did you face that? And how did you decide what made you really kind of go, well, social media is really where I need to kind of invest in? Because it feels to mm -hmm. me like you were part of a big company and you know, getting paid for your creativity and your planning skills, and you didn't really feel the need or I guess I guess what I'm getting to is because you're under this umbrella of like a big company that's well known, there's yep. very little incentive for you to sort of be a personality online necessarily when you're under that umbrella. Um, so could you comment a little bit on that? And maybe, you know, has that changed? Or, or do you think people should actually do that while they're still under this umbrella? Or is it right that you only really kind of focus on that when you're on your own? Well, I was always, and that's a great question. <clears throat> I was always personally active on social media ever since the world of social media began. I was an early adopter to Facebook. I was on Instagram. I was on Twitter. Um, I, I signed up to LinkedIn when it first started, when it was basically just a recruitment platform and nothing to do with how it's evolved today. Um, you know, so I want to say in my roles that I had when I was you know, the role that I was in venue sourcing with Global Synergies, as well as the role that I had with George P. Johnson doing all the IBM events, what I always consistently did was maintain not visibility, but consistency of what I was doing online. I would show it, you know, I would, if I was like on site at a hotel, I was very active on Instagram, sharing photos of the, the meeting spaces and my bedroom or, and doing Instagram stories of today, this is what, you know, my day looks like. Um, so I was indirectly still using social media to support what I was doing, but it wasn't in the forefront is what I want to say. So I was still using my offline activities to fuel my online activities. Um, so it was basically content for me. You know, I loved sharing what I was doing at all times. I loved showing people the destinations I was in. I loved checking in. And, and I also used to be that one person that would tell, you know, I would be on the Global Synergies like meetings and I would be like, you all need to be on Instagram. You need to be sharing your stuff. You need to be checking in. You need to be doing, because if we're telling people that we are venue sourcers, this is one of the most visible ways for them to see that you're good at what you do because you're going everywhere and you're seeing everything and they can see you doing that. What better way to show your expertise and your experience 
which is personal to you, which is the reason why they would use you. When you have this beautiful medium to do just that, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Instagram, whether it's Facebook, whether it's LinkedIn, it doesn't matter the medium, whatever you're comfortable using, you should be using something because it's such a great way to capture that content and then also be able to get back to it for you personally, because you can say, oh my God, like a month ago, I was in this hotel in Berlin and I don't really remember certain things. So let me go back and look at my photos and look at my post and, and talk about that particular ballroom and share that post with my client because that's the hotel I kind of want to tell them about. So for me, it was always a little bit like digital footprints or online footprints that I was just leaving behind, you know, and I was always I was always in this space of of documenting is what I want to say. I've always been documenting social media. So when I was working for George P. Johnson, yes, I, I wasn't on hospitality exchange. I was Sabrina Myers. And, and so a lot of what I did was, you know, what we all do, uh, you know, we're, we're the event profs and day-to-day running of things. But I captured everything. I captured, you know, when we had funny stuff happen, I would put it on my stories. You know, if there was something interesting, I would put it on my stories. If I was super impressed with this incredible event that we um, uh, organized for five and a half thousand people in Vienna. I wanted to show people that I was proud to be like, this is the team I work with. This is what we pulled off. How awesome is that? So that's how I was sharing my stories. And then obviously when we transitioned into the pandemic phase, um, it was that, okay, I can't travel anymore. I can't do these events. I do have a lot of B-roll content that I could probably repost, but does it really make sense to do that right now? Because who knows when we're going to be doing this stuff again. So how do I now transition in order to be able to stay visible? And I kind of went in with the one word that I could think of was collaboration. It was, it was, how do I do it? It has to be with other people. And there was, this point where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was kind of collaborating with, you know, I was collaborating with Irina Graf a lot. You know, I was collaborating with, um, with Heidi from the Mice Guru. I was collaborating with a few people, you know, who are known um, to be, you know, online uh, in the industry and also known for their content. But I wanted to do something different. And I was trying to figure out what it was. And, and then I watched Chris Martin from Coldplay go live on Facebook and he basically called it together at home. And basically what he was doing was he was, he was uh, going live and he was answering questions from all his fans and taking requests. And then they were raising money for charity. I think for a a charity called global citizen in the process. And then at the end of it, he would, he would dare another celebrity. So I think it was like John legend or something. And I thought there's something to this. Because there's a community of event professionals out there globally, and we're all stuck in the same situation. We're all stuck at home. So I had this idea to create, and you were part of this, because I did uh, speak with you as well, to create a video podcast series, because I very much knew that people wanted to see other people. We were stuck at home, but they wanted to see other people, and they wanted to see what their fellow event profs were doing and how they were going all around the world, because I know I was. So I came up with a video podcast series called Event Profs Together at Home, and I made a list 
of the people that I wanted to be on that. And it was a global list. It was event professionals I knew from my travels. It was people like yourselves who I'd never met or personally, but, you know, I, I knew that it would be cool to ha have you on the series. People like Julius and Dahlia, um, uh, people like Irina, of course, as well as Heidi. So, you know, a lot of different people from all around the world. And I honestly think that's really what, what was the catalyst and kicked off everything because I was asking them the same 10, 10 questions, had nothing to do with events. Um, it was really just about their experiences, what they've learned, how they're coping. And, you know, just sometimes the stories would just, as you know, sometimes the stories just unravel themselves when you're talking to people and you didn't even set out to, to ask them those questions or, or, or have them say anything. Um, and then you start making these connections. And, and it basically, I would say, led the way to me getting more um, virtual work. I think that's probably one of the reasons I got to be, or I, I was asked to be virtual event moderator for the um, event MB uh, events last uh, year before last, because I was so visible. And clearly I could talk to a camera. So <laughs> I think it was a question of, okay, hey, let's see if she's interested. And I was, and that led me to doing virtual moderation, which I do now. That led me to becoming MC. That led me to speaking. That led me to doing all manner of online engagements that were not any more restricted to just the world of social media. But in a sense, it proved, it proved my point of how powerful a medium and tool social media can be and that people should not be rolling their eyes. And there's so much of opportunity that they're missing out on if they're not using it. Because, it, you know, I'm not telling you to run around and shoot yourself in your bikini or whatever and drink, you know, champagne glasses out of bathtubs and all of that stuff. If you want to be a travel influencer, you can do that. But otherwise, this is... Uh, this is what I keep going on about and how it is such a powerful, powerful medium and tool for so many things that we can achieve if we set out to do it. Thank you for covering all that. And I think it's it's really interesting to understand those different points in the transition and that's sort of the motivators for the different points in the, in the transition. Um, how would you... How do you like to be described now? Because it does sound like you have these different companies, you do different services, which is, you know, which is fine. And I think it's it's good that you are able to do all these different things and they're all interconnected. But if if you had to describe yourself in, in with one kind of descriptor, what would that be? That's such a hard question. Cause I'm a <clears throat> gosh, okay. I would probably describe myself as a event professional who's passionate about social media and offers virtual moderation services. <laughs> <laughs> Very short. That's, it definitely fits on a, you know, a nice title. You know, uh, it's, it's, and nowadays you can be, be very, you know, clever and, and, and very, what's that word? Um, you can be, I'm going to say Nordic. You can be very Nordic about how you describe yourself. Um, and you'd get this. It, you can say events, Social media, virtual moderation. 
and just have full stops in between. And that should basically sum up what I do. I don't have to go into like a full paragraph, but you know, that should motivate someone to be like, that's interesting. And make, <laughs> make sure you, you could you use those keywords, right? Um, exactly. Exactly. So what if you're offered to do moderation of something that's completely outside the event industry? Is that something I, that you really, that you do? I have, I have, I, I, I was, um, and this is like a two pronged, opportunity it was uh, a company in brussels and they are a digital agency i want to say and they were organizing an event for a construction association so like nothing i know anything about at all um and they wanted a hyper moderator and a i had no idea what a hyper moderator was i was like uh i've done hybrid what is a hyper moderator <laughs> So I've done hybrid, I've done virtual, but it's hyper. So basically what they wanted was they had an MC um, that, you know, would be speaking to their guests. What they wanted me to be doing was they'd set up a, a, uh, a, um, a studio just with me. Um, and I would be basically uh, checking the Twitter and checking uh, the Slido poll results and then feeding back what is happening on their social media channels as the day progresses. So in every session, it would be like, let's cut to Sabrina and see what, you know, our, our community is saying, are they asking any questions? Um, and then, you know, we asked a question at the beginning of this session, let's see, you know, how they voted and, and, you know, and then we'll feed those back to the speakers. So essentially it felt like, I felt like I was the weather girl. If you're thinking about like Anchorman, <laughs> It was like, let's cut to Sabrina, who's going to tell us what the weather is looking like outside. And then I would be like, it's looking excited. And it's like, back to you, Jim. You know, and then like Jim would take over and continue. And I did that at every session. But I thought it was really cool because it kind of almost created a really nice dynamic between me and the actual MC. So um, it didn't feel like he was in this isolated uh medium you know so uh and it worked really well everyone really really enjoyed it i had a great time uh i learned something new and i actually do think it's something that um event professionals that are organizing virtual events should think about because you know yeah. a lot oftentimes we're so in the platform we don't see what's happening outside and all you really need is that bridge which could be a hyper moderator to kind of bring in what is happening and create this added dynamic to the situation so i will be hyper moderator soon again uh, for another very exciting event coming up so i'm glad that i paved a little bit of the way for that happening <laughs> yeah i've never heard of hyper moderator i mean i would probably describe that as an online moderator and then you're kind of linked with the on-site moderator or the in-person moderator but uh yeah that you know, just sounds cooler, doesn't it? Yeah, hyper just, yeah, I was like, hyper, okay, do you have to be hyper when you're kind of Maybe, I think you do. Okay. <laughs> I think you do. I think in general, moderators should be hyper. Should be hyper. Um, do you to have us, to wear a hard yeah. hat for that particular client? No, I didn't, thank God. They were quite, they were quite, <laughs> they were quite, they were quite, they were all very formal in corporate. So that was, that was good. But um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, if they had asked me to, I probably would have, you know, I'm one of those. I just go with it. I mean, it, yeah, it could be fun, but uh, yeah, might not exactly. be super handy to have it. So, I mean, I think you've already talked about this a little bit, but I'd love to get your take on how th how this has developed, how this type of role or these types of roles have developed and 
and where are you kind of looking to develop from here? Uh, because, you know, you have these three sides to your business and what you do, but, mm -hmm. you know, is there one that you're particularly looking to expand further or wh where are you going to kind of like invest your energy or do you feel like it's realistic to invest in all three at the same time? Gosh, I want to say it's realistic to invest my energy in all three at the same time. But um, I want to say that the virtual event moderation or the event moderation side of it is, is, is probably doesn't have that much of an overlap with the other parts of it. So, for example, um, if I want to, again, when when the event logistics start back up again and I have to be on site, you know, running events then um, I'm not sure how that's going to work with the virtual event moderation side of it. Yes, I could take some jobs in between there where I can fit them around each other. So I could still do the virtual event moderator um, roles around the in-person logistics roles. And right? do you also it's just do matter... in-person moderating or just the virtual moderator? I haven't yet. So, you know, it's what well, I kind of have in terms of a hybrid event. When I was part of um, the Digital Disruptor last year, I was on site with the in-person audience doing the event moderation for the live audience and then feeding what's happening from the live audience back to the virtual speakers that we had and being that bridge. So to a certain degree, yes, but I've not been an event moderator for a, for a pure event in-person audience if that makes sense like it always had that virtual element to it it was being broadcast or something and I was involved so hybrid and virtual yes but pure in-person I haven't done that yet I would love to do it absolutely um I really really enjoy it um and if they have confidence in me then I'm more than happy to take on more moderation roles because I really do enjoy it and it's still very much tied into the world of events um so I'm happy to kind of go down that route but I'm not actively pursuing it if that makes sense right okay. um, but let, let me put it to you this way then let's say there's a really cool event coming up they would like to work with Sabrina Myers and they'd like to work with you as a planner as a moderator and as the social media person you can't do all three at the same time can't I can't I well that I would could, be impressive I think if you I could, could be the, I think you know, I the could. planner behind the scenes and on stage moderating and doing the social media I think that might be a little challenging I think it might be challenging I think it's very possible Miguel I honestly do I think also it depends on the scale of the event if it was a very cool event yes um because at the end of the day I would still be very active on social media during the event myself right Mm -hmm. So whether it's doing it for the event or it's doing it for myself, it's just a matter of, okay, how do we play that? Um, from the planning side, my assumption is I'm not going to be the only person planning it. So I'll have a team and I'll be part of a team. So technically that could be easy to work around. And then from the moderation side, yeah, I could easily do that as well, depending on how we set it up and how big the event is. So it's all possible. That's how that's many how many hours possible. would you expect to sleep during that? Not event? very, not very much. I mean, I don't think I don't. But we event professionals don't sleep very much during events <laughs> anyway. So <laughs> like normal events, I'd probably get maybe four hours max. And a normal like event, like I know I remember from my IBM uh, conference days, uh, I would go to bed at like one 
maybe two, depending what night it was. If there was that gala night where all the IBMers are at the bar and someone has to stay awake to make sure there's nothing out of ordinary happening or at least be on call, we would be, there would be someone that have to be there till the bar closes. And then you're back, you know, in the event office at like 6.30 in the morning, maybe even earlier. So it's, it's, it, but you do it for a small, small period of time. So you can always go home and then catch up on your sleep when you have to. It's intense for sure. Yeah. Great. Well, thank absolutely. you. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I think, thank you for just describing all those things. I think it's, it's super interesting. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. wanted to kind of go a bit big picture now. Mm -hmm. What do you think are, are kind of the big challenges that, that the industry is, is going to face? Uh, you know, we're at this very interesting time where mm -hmm. hopefully soon in-person events are an option around the world again. And, and you know, it, it, I think it's, it's reasonable to assume that change is going to continue in some sense. What do you think are are the challenges that that we're going to be facing? And, and you know, and maybe you have some that aren't so obvious that that are maybe coming up ahead. Oh, I think one of the biggest challenges is just going to be commitment in general, um, committing to doing in person events. I think is you know I think it's going to be a much harder i know a lot of people say that they are returning yes but i think it's going to be a a, a a much harder battle to fight with your end client um to get them to do an in-person event i think initially yes but they might not kind of be as sustainable as we think i think it'll start off maybe strong and then we, it might go through a very mm, interesting phase. I don't know. It, it, that's kind of the feeling I have. But I just feel like once the floodgates are fully open and there's nothing stopping anyone, there's still a lot of data that we have accumulated in the last two years. And anyone that compares data and budgets is going to ask some serious questions. And that's where the commitment is going to come in. And and not every corporate is going to um, say no. There, there might be corporates that are like, yes, we can meet again. Let's just do it. I don't care about the data. But there's going to be a significant number of organizations and businesses that are going to look at the data. They're going to look at the analytics. They're going to see the difference in budgets of bringing people together in person and then actually committing to doing the in-person events. But then there's also going to be that, well, now that we've committed to doing this in-person events, this is my next challenge that I see. How are we going to make it worth our while? You know, we're bringing these people together. We can't do it like we used to because we are actually investing more money and I want to say more of more risk bringing people together. 
So how can we do it in a different way? You know, there's going to be a higher level of event design involved, I think, in terms of conceptualizing it and making sure that if we're going to bring these 40 people over, like it, we have to make it count. It has to be not a waste of anybody's time. So it has to be more intentional. It has to have more purpose, you know, and I think that's going to be hard. That's going to be challenging. Um, I myself, for example, you know, and this is not slacking anyone off in any way because I was very, very happy to be there and it was an in-person event, but I was at IBTM last year and, you know, it was one of the first trade shows after Vegas uh, IMAX that reopened and we could be there in person and meet again. But it felt like I was at the show from 2019. Nothing had changed. You know, it's almost like we had this intense period of learning and development and all this amazingness, but it, it didn't, nothing showed in there. And I think, you know, to one sense, people were really happy it was happening and people were really happy to see each other again. And I'm part of that camp. Absolutely. But part of me was a little bit upset that I didn't see any kind of evolution, you know, with everything that was happening. And, and even the tech brands were stacked away somewhere at the back when they should have actually been bigger players in the picture because they, you know, there, there was so much, um, that they could do now versus two years ago, people weren't even interested potentially in that product. So, you know, I just felt like there was an, a lot of opportunity lost and my, I hope, and it's not really, well, yeah, it is a bit of a worry. I hope that the trade shows and the industry shows and everything that we are going to be experiencing uh, as event professionals, I hope they do change. I hope they do take into account you know, the growth that we've gone through in the last two years. And I hope that they somehow factor in everything we might have learned to some degree. I'm not saying, but I just don't want it to just be back where it was. And we just are like the dinosaurs, you know? So I think you, you raise a very interesting point, but I'd love to get from you. What would you like to have seen? You know, you're saying it sort of felt like you were back in 2019 and that's fine. You know, I totally, I totally understand that, but if you're sort of saying, I would have liked, you know, I would have expected, I was expecting different. Yeah. Do you have a vision of what that different looks like or would you like to see? Well, in 2019, I spoke at IBTM and I actually thought it was very cool how they set it up because it was an open stage in the middle of the show floor. And people just came, even if they didn't mean to come, they would come and they would sit and they would listen, even if it was five, 10 minutes, you know, it was a great way to capture people's attention. It was also a great way to introduce, you know, newer topics. People were talking about influencer marketing. They were talking about digital marketing. They were talking about different things that weren't traditionally discussed in our industry. And they were bringing a lot of faces to the forefront. So for me, that was a very innovative thing. I was like, wow, this is great. Right. So my expectation was that would continue given the two years that we've gone through. Right. You have two years worth of people that are incredibly visible online. Yeah. Pick them in Europe. So many. None of which I saw. Maybe one or two that I know personally, he's in my community and they were part of the content stage. But the content stage was put behind curtains at the back of the show hidden away where 
it was not in the footfall of anyone. You couldn't just, you know, you had to intentionally look at the content, you know, uh, diary and then be like, oh yeah, I want to attend that. I'm going to attend it and then go. You couldn't sort of, you know, on your way spontaneously be like, oh, this is really cool. And then drop in, talk for about 15 minutes and then move on. So I thought that was a step back. And I would have loved to see... You know, obviously you're not on the organizing team, but why do you think that happened? Was that a, a budgetary thing? Was that a uh, people actually don't want this? They actually want to be here in person. And so let's kind of go back to a more, if you want to explore, go to the back of the hall kind of setup. Or was there just kind of not enough people there or, you know, the buzz wasn't there. So it just was impossible to do that. I think it was a mixture. I think definitely budget had a lot to do with it. Push, absolutely. I was going to go German just now. Um, <laughs> just, <laughs> um, yeah, no, definitely uh, budget had a must have had a lot to do with it. It was a much smaller show. You could feel that, obviously. They, you know, usually they take over the entire hall. They were only kind of three quarter. Um, so there are obviously a lot of exhibitors that normally might be there that weren't there, for example. So, you know, potentially budget was a big thing, I'm sure. Um, you know, yes, uh, it was exactly when Omicron hit. So a lot of uh, countries shut down in terms of travel. So they lost, I would say, a significant number of hosted buyers from uh, from feeder markets like the UK, for example. So that definitely impacted it. Um, but I'm not talking about the buzz and I'm not talking about the people that uh, were there. Everyone that was there had the best time. They were living their best lives like me. We were living our best lives, right? What I was talking about was more like, okay, the content was happening. There were some really good sessions happening, but you know, a one was at the back of the stage. The other one was not even on the show floor. You had to go up the escalators and go somewhere else and attend those sessions. And B, that content would only be made available to attendees or anyone that registered 10 days after the trade show happened. Think about that for a second. I don't know very many people that are going to go back onto the IBTM website to watch those sessions that they missed 10 days later. Because I think we live in very much an attention economy right now. And when you have that attention in that period of time, that's when you have to capitalize on it. So you have to kind of think, how can we do that? Obviously, maybe budget was an issue. It might not have been that affordable to broadcast every session live. But there wasn't a single session live. There could be certain keynote sessions you could maybe broadcast live or something. But there wasn't even that kind of option, you know. So I guess for me, that was a bit like, oh, you know, like, because everyone was like, what's happening? What sessions are happening? And I would get messages on my Instagram and stuff. And they're like, we can't see anything that's happening at the show. Which I think is so important now. If you have a show like that, you need to give people access to visibility of what is happening at the show. Your social media team has to be spot on, running around, causing amok. You need to get ambassadors running around as well because your team's not going to be able to do it all. So, you know, you need to arm people that are on trade shows. You need to arm people that are attending. You need to make this like what they did with IMAX Vegas. They did that very well. There were so many people that were sharing stories, that were on LinkedIn, they were sharing videos, they were sharing. I saw maybe a tenth of that happen with IPTM. So I think it's kind of trying to 
see what the success stories are and then change and hopefully the next ones that are coming up like IMX Frankfurt and you know the shows that are happening everywhere else I don't know if ITV Berlin is happening it's not on my show anyway but you know it's that we I hope people evolve and take advantage of the digital opportunities that are available to make these um, events more accessible and visible to people that are not there Mm-hmm. but also cater to um, be more interactive for the people that are there. Yeah. So let me just take one, one, a little bit further on one point. You said, you know, in an ideal world, all the sessions would be streamed, they would all be available online, and you could kind of see that online. I've seen that, or shows go to tremendous efforts to do that. Mm-hmm. And then you have 20 Nobody. people watching online, right? It's like, it's like, yeah. okay, this is really expensive and hard to do and the response may not be um what you're expecting you know i think for for the amount of effort should the content that's being put on at the shows not be strong enough that you can record and then release on demand or you know watch party or whatever format you want to do later you know what i'm saying is shouldn't that content be able to stand on its own so that you're not relying on kind of buzz to drive people to that content? Absolutely. But what I'm saying is there, you're not going to ever have a show where every single session is killer. Yeah. You're going to have good sessions, like keynote sessions, and then you're going to have filler sessions, which are not what everyone potentially wants to uh, sit in and listen on and it might not be a topic that they're remotely interested in but there's a certain percentage that is interested right so i, I get that but I'm, i guess what i'm questioning yeah. is is the buzz of what's happening in person a necessity for that content to work or should we focus on just capturing that content in the best possible way and then sharing that content you know in a year-round strategy I think you should definitely share that content in a year-round strategy. Yes, absolutely. But I think the content will have more legs if you used the buzz, if that makes sense. And like, so should I know, you sort of split up the content so some makes sense for the buzz and some is more kind of for later? Correct. Correct. Which is which was, you know, um, for example, if you've got six or oh, three or four keynotes, then you kind of use those keynotes to do the buzz and you broadcast those keynotes. And when you're doing the buzz, you say, well, we also have these sessions, but they're going to be pre-recorded and you can access them and we're going to, you know, share them out. But the buzz, and by buzz, I guess we mean promotion, right? The, the promotion and the marketing of it is as important as the content itself that's happening. Because if you don't have the buzz and the promotion consistently, you're not going to get what you want from the content in terms of uptake. So if this event you went to, for example, did all of that and they they had all the sessions, what was the corresponding promotional tactic? What mediums were they using to consistently be like, hey, this is happening, tune in now. This is a little snippet, tune in now. Like, was there an actual conscientious, intentional social media uh, buzz push out 
so that they could get as many people as possible that weren't maybe at the show or whatever through their platforms or however way to attend those sessions. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think that makes sense. I, I have seen events do that well. I have also seen events do that and you know not really get much traction, mm. right? So I think sometimes it it just kind of hits a hits a wall. Um, I think the the best case is is uh, Dreamforce, right? Um, I don't know mm. if you followed what Dreamforce have done. I mean, obviously, you know, high budget event, lots of kind of keynote type sessions. But what I thought was really interesting was most of the Dreamforce content that was released online, at least this kind of mainstream, was I think pre recorded. It was very yeah. kind of high budget, but very much. You know, this is a video that you're watching and that's it. There isn't really engagement or kind of a chance to kind of connect. Um, and then, uh, you know, what they've done now with, I think it's called Dreamforce Plus, or I, I don't know the exact name, yeah. but what they've done now with their, close. you know, they've essentially created a Netflix for yeah. their content. It's brilliant. Right. Which absolutely, I agree, brilliant. But I mean, the budget to do that and to edit all the sessions down and to organize it yeah. and to create the platform that yeah. has that Netflix feel and and the you know the production level of the content. Yeah, I just fear that's outside of the scope of most events that we're talking about. I agree. No, I completely agree. But I think it's also about well, they're a trailblazer, right? They're a pioneer and they got the budget to do it. And Net Netflix was in the same position all those years ago. It was like, what? You know, like, what are you planning to do? And then you look at them now, right? And you wouldn't even question it. Um, so I guess my point is, it obviously, it hasn't, you know, Netflix and its success hasn't stemmed hundreds and millions of competitors, has it? It hasn't, but people have learned from their business model and how they do what they do. And they've learned, how are they engaging people? You know, what are they doing differently? You know, how can we learn from Netflix and, you know, for our business models or however we want to do that, you know, um, within our business, whatever it may be. And I'm sure obviously there are books written on this, but Dream, you know, Dreamscape is the same. You know, this is a company that went ahead and did that. And everyone is just like, oh my God, I don't have a budget that and I can't do it but it's not it's it's not it's the it's not the idea it's the execution they did it you know they've done it now um you can very clearly see what they've done now if you're really interested in I wouldn't say replicating that but you can learn from it you can see okay what elements of this could we try to do with our event to a small scale we start baby steps right? And see if we can build it up. If it means, you know, we, we change a little bit our way of broadcasting and our way of, this is what I say, content repurposing, right? And we try to build a community, which is, for example, what Swapcard is trying to do now. They are building the Evolve community because it's going to be a very much uh, community-led, community-driven platform and medium, right? And that is actually going to fuel and engage their events that they continue to do because they're creating a circle and they're creating a family, so to speak, where they're giving people what they want and the people tell them what they want and it's a nice circle that flows and they evolve that way. And 
to a certain degree, they've kind of picked a few of the things that they've learned from maybe Netflix and from maybe Dreamscape, and they're trying to do that. And they're keeping the content on the platform so that people can have access to it. You know, at any point of time, they can plug it whenever they want. And they literally have a content bank of content that they can continue to repurpose for however knows who knows yep. how long. For sure. Right? No, and, and I totally so, agree. I think Dreamforce and Salesforce is is really the it's great to use it as a as a best case, right? As the as the right. what to aim for. Uh, and I exactly. think it also uh it also demonstrates how important it is to take content and repurpose it and, and repurpose it very carefully, right? right. Because um, the amount of sessions that I've seen recorded, posted on YouTube, and yeah. nobody knows they're there. And, and and sometimes they're not very easy to watch, you know, um, yeah. the budget you need to light a stage properly to get the slides to kind of figure it all out and make it into a very watchable thing for online consumption, it, you know, there needs to be some thought into that. It's not just we're going to put a camera in the back of the room, record this Correct. and then, you know, then put it online. I think we've done that for 10, 15 years, and it doesn't actually produce great results. I, you know, I think yeah. there's exceptions. If you're talking in an academic world where yeah. The quality might be bad, but the content is absolutely unique. And this is, you know, the world expert on stage. And you need to watch that if you're studying this or if you're doing these exactly. kind of procedures. I totally yeah. get that. But I think for the rest of us that are sort of more, <laughs> you know, want to watch something with a decent production value, I think it's it's different, right? Absolutely. But also there's so many ways and opportunities for you to be able to repurpose that content now you know, where you might not necessarily just be restricted to um, your uh, website, right? To keep, you don't necessarily have to create like a Netflix style library. You have all this content. You can just drip feed it across all your social media platforms. Yeah. You know, that's another way to repurpose the content, you know, and keep people still engaged uh, with your content and you repurposing it. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be something incredibly expensive. You could use all the free tools out there, but very strategically, for example. Um, but the thought does have to go into it. And this is what a lot of times is missing, it, the, the actual thought and the intention to do it. For correctly. sure. I totally agree with that. But I, I, not to disagree with you, uh, <laughs> I think it's also important to acknowledge the resources. You, you mentioned free tools. Right. And I totally, yeah, there are free video editing tools. There's free but graphics tools, but somebody has to do that. Right. And Correct. I think you also need to do it with a clear plan in mind because Correct. taking one session, grabbing some nice videos and making some Instagram stories out of it. Great. But then what do you do with the hundred other sessions that you've recorded? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, it gets to a point where it's like, okay, that was cool. Uh, uh how are we going to do the rest of this and how are we going to do it? Yeah. You know, in, you're in absolutely right. right. And, and I, I am a victim of that myself. I know how much time it takes to edit content, to create content, to curate content. And you do absolutely need to have the resources. And I, I think I spoke about this at um, the last thing I spoke at uh, an event. And, and I said, you know, like you said, you have to have a plan and you have to dedicate the resources. The, the, the free platform part of it was that you don't have to create housing 
of your own is what I meant. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to create like a holding facility like they have, like an actual, you know, Netflix type. uh, You don't have to go up there, right? You don't have to go. Exactly. You can just, but you do need to have a content editor. You do need to have someone that can make it, that can cut it, that can edit it. And then you have to have someone that will post it or schedule it. And all of that, you, you do need to have the right resources in order to make that happen. But hopefully that is an area that people are investing in already. We don't know. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's still quite early stages. Need to, for sure. I mean, and not only do you need to be able to do that, but you need to be able to do that fast enough Correct. to have it in front of people when they're looking for it, right? Because exactly. as you said, it's much harder to then sort of raise the buzz about something a lot, a lot later, even if the content is, is very yeah. good, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so these I are all to... kind of things you got to keep in mind. Absolutely. I think we could we could talk about this for hours. I wanted to <laughs> come back to one point that you had earlier that I thought was really interesting that was worth exploring a little bit further. Um, mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about this idea of the new challenges of commitment. You know, and I think yeah. that's really interesting, particularly from the virtual event perspective. That idea of committing to an event for three days seems very strange in a virtual context. When you're in person on site, it's natural, you've invested, you're traveling, etc. But if you're virtual, you go and make dinner, you go pick up the kids, you you life continues. Uh, And I like to say that when you're participating in a virtual event, the event is a guest in your house. Yes. Not the other way around. I remember you saying so that. So you have yep. to, you have to sort of be a good guest, and being a good guest is partially also, I believe, um, being flexible and sort of being. It's okay that you can't pay attention to me right now. That you have other things to do. Go, go and do yeah. those. Exactly. So I, I wanted to just get your take on marketing events or, or kind of mm-hmm. promoting events because yeah. it's a different proposal now, right? It's not sort of. You're going to go to this destination, you're going to meet some great people, you're going to see some great content, and it's going to be a tactile, you know, movement, moving experience. Actually, it's not. You're going to sit at your desk, and hopefully it's an engaging event with good content, and you're going to get something out of it. But it's a very different proposal. How do you feel we need to market these proposals, these propositions? I think... Use exactly what you just said. You know, you know, those are the pitfalls. You know, those are the weaknesses, you know, Um, have an interesting campaign around it where like, you know, we know you need toilet breaks or we know that you need to go feed your dog or your cat. Um, We're going to have this awesome session. um, And right, you know, in between, we're going to have time for you to, you know, go and do what you need to do. I think what's important is that we recognize, just like you've said, that people don't want to feel locked in. Because the whole idea of being at your laptop and working remotely and being part of something is that you're free to do whatever you want, you know, that can, that's within your control. Um, so for events, um, you know, virtual events, it's about, I guess, understanding the pain points like you've brought up and finding a way to use them as an advantage. So, you know, plan things that are, you know, you have your content sessions, you know, your serious content sessions, but plan things that are interesting and fun in between that 
people are going to want to pay attention to. But if they don't, it's okay because they know, okay, it's like a yoga session. I can miss that. I can go do something. But I'm going to come back and do this content session. Um, but I also do think that this is um, this is something that a lot of people are grappling with at the moment. Um, because as we said, it's an attention economy. And how do you keep attention of people for three days for a virtual event? Um, I don't think you're going to have the attention of the same people for three days. You know, so maybe potentially breaking the content up into different topical streams, you might be able to get people that are, say, they're super interested in engagement. On this day, that's all we're talking about. And this day, they're super interested in dinosaurs. We're only talking to dinosaur people. And on this day, they're super interested in trees. And we're only talking about trees. And that way, the people that come for the content, they're not coming for three days, they might join the other sessions if they're interested in dinosaurs or trees, but they're going to come intentionally for that one day where the content is specifically for them. Cause there's, I can hands down, hand on heart tell you, no one has ever sat for a three day virtual event consistently. It's just not happened. They might say they have, but at some points their, their camera goes off. They're not there. So, you know, or they're on mute or whatever the case is, but it's how do you I guess, you know, uh, get their attention. And one way to do it is, you know, is, is, is to divide and conquer, I think. Um, and then try to make it as engaging in between as possible um, and pick the right personalities that make sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's important to acknowledge that the reality of what we're, what we're marketing uh, and, and yeah. what we're, what we're offering. And uh, yeah, I think virtual events, Online events get a bit of a bad rep sometimes, but they are useful. And I think people do acknowledge that. So twisting that around and kind of acknowledging yeah. the challenges and, and, and kind of highlighting the benefits would probably be uh, more successful than ignoring the challenges. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. Embrace them. That's what we did in the last two years. We, we all embrace the exactly. madness of the pandemic. So why shouldn't, you know, virtual events do that? I completely agree. Sabrina, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I wanted to get your um, input on the next guest that we should invite on the podcast. This is something we ask all our guests and uh, we are starting to invite people that have been uh, recommended by others. So I'd love to get your uh, recommendation. Oh, wow. That's a big record. Okay. I recommend, oh, wow. Either this person's going to hate me or they're going to love me, right? So we're going to go with Jason Greenman from Acomo in Barcelona, Spain, is who I recommend. Okay. Give us a little bit of why you recommend us having Jason on the podcast. So Jason has been my accountability buddy for the pandemic. And we've kind of really experienced this together but online. And we started a show on LinkedIn called uh, Event Profs Marketing, like 20 Minutes Live Event Prof Marketing. Um, and in that show, we talked about pretty much everything and anything that we were all experiencing um, that either had to do with the pandemic, had to do with the events industry, or had to do with um, online digital marketing and all of that, but for event profs. So I think he would be fantastic. I think he's very insightful and eloquent. And I think that there's definitely some pearls of wisdom he can drop in the podcast. 
Perfect. Well, we'll be in touch with Jason. If you're listening, Jason, uh, look out. Uh, we will come and, and, and ask for you to be a guest on the show uh, at some point in the future. Sabrina, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I hope the listeners enjoy this conversation and uh, I wish you lots of success in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Event Manager Podcast. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For the latest news and the best articles on technology and innovation in the event industry, head over to eventmb.com.